Hi everyone, uh, welcome. Uh, we will start in around five minutes and I shared the paper and the presentation on top of the room and the paper link in the chat. So feel free in the meantime to check it out. And um, yeah, Dr. Florindo, she will be joining us in a few minutes. So uh, we start on top of the hour, thank you. Oh, and feel free to share the room if you think this is something that interests people. So thank you so much. Hi, Arpad, how are you? Uh, feel free to come up to the stage uh, if you, if you want to be part of the discussion in a few minutes. Thank you. Hello, I just can't keep you company until you start. <laughs> Thank you for coming. I think it will be really interesting, LT, and uh, thanks everyone. Um, yeah, we'll start in a little bit. just broke down i was sharing the room on linkedin and the app just stopped working so <laughs> thank you lt that you came up here you saved the day what happened you 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 got kicked out of your room yes <laughs> i was sharing the room on linkedin and uh -huh. uh, yeah i just got kicked out <laughs> I, well, I think it happened a couple of times yesterday in a, in, a, in a house. The host who started the room <laughs> kept popping in and popping upstairs, downstairs, upstairs. So maybe that's it. Hopefully nothing will happen when we started it. <laughs> we'll talk. Yeah, I agree. Hi, Joyce. Hi, Victoria. Um, we'll start on top of the hour, so uh, thanks for coming. Yeah, hi. I may be in and out, so, um, but I wanted to support the room. Great. Look forward to this topic. Sounds very great and interesting, and it's really important to make things lower cost. Yeah, I agree that uh, this is like uh, really interesting uh, because of that. Uh, and um, I think, yeah, I, I really always 
like when it's you know it's really elegant research but also it's something that people in the future can afford to use so um that's the perfect situation <laughs> so um yeah we'll uh, Dr. Florinda, she is trying to get in and uh, she's new to Clubhouse. She's joining Clubhouse for us. So um, yeah, please have a, a few minutes of patience. <laughs> and if you in the meantime want to check out the presentation and the paper that I shared in the chat, uh, yeah, feel free to do so and share the room while we wait for a few minutes until um, Dr. Florindo, she can join us here on stage. And yeah, thank you everyone. Yeah, I, I came at the healthcare area from the patient perspective. And I'm also come from a, my mom always said she was a depression child. So she didn't like to spend money if she could avoid it. So I've always been like, very frugal <laughs> so i love things that pay attention to the cost hi lena how are you i'm so glad you made it <laughs> Thank you. So the unmute button is all the way on the bottom right. Uh, if you press that little microphone symbol. Okay, you now hear. yes. Yes. Now I think you can hear me. It's okay if I don't see you, right? Or not? Yes, mm -hmm, exactly. That's uh, <laughs> just the, we have your picture and your voice. So. <laughs> okay. Good. Yeah, thank you so much for coming. And um, I'm really thankful that you, you know, went through the trouble to making the account and everything. So thank you for that. Thank you for the invitation. It's a pleasure. Yeah. And um, before we start, I'll give a short introduction and we usually have like a couple of interview questions, if that's okay with you. And then we, we go ahead and dive into your very interesting uh, research. So um, yeah, welcome everyone to the Science Society and a special welcome to you, Elena. And um, yeah, as I said, um, I wanted to introduce you to the audience here. Um, Dr. Elena Florindo, she is um, a group leader at the IMED Research Institute for Medicines at the University of Lisboa. And um, she did her, um, she, she went to school in, the, in, pharm in pharmaceutical sciences at the Faculty of Pharmacy at the University of Lisbon in Portugal. And then she did her PhD in pharmaceutical pharmaceutical technology, nanomedicines and vaccination at the University of Lisbon in Portugal in collaboration with the University College of London in the UK. And she did her habilitation in pharmaceutical technology um, at the Faculty of Pharmacy at the University of Lisbon. And um, she is now the Associate Professor and Faculty 
of Pharmacy at the University of Lisbon. And um, her research um, in her lab focuses mostly on the characterization of mechanisms of cellular dynamics and their crosstalk and networks to identify new targets uh, to engineer um, translational nanotechnology-based systems for drug delivery, imaging, and immunotherapy uh, for uh, clinically relevant um, uh, problems like cancer, inflammation, infectious, and genetic diseases. And um, yeah, before, as I said, before we start, um, we usually have like a couple of general interview questions so people get to know you a little bit better. So usually our first question is, how did you choose the path of science? Was that something you always wanted to do or was there maybe a book or a teacher or professor that kind of sparked your interest in the field of science? Thank you. Thank you, Katerina, for the kind introduction. Regarding your question, I think I, I always thought about myself in something related to science, but it is true that around the, I mean, like a teenager, like 15 years old, I always like to write a lot and uh, learn. So at some point I, I was debating between which path to take, if it was mostly related to science and health, or to go <laughs> in a completely different one um, towards like a law. Uh, but then for me, it was always much more when we had to make that decision. Uh, we are very young, but still. So I thought that the path that was more interesting to me and uh, something that uh, I'm very curious. So and I, I like surprises a lot. It was more into the science. So I started uh, to think about uh, which was which would be the best way. So debating between the medicine and pharmaceutical sciences because I also would like to to make then the medicines to treat the diseases. So it was more or less like a, a continuous path. Yeah, that's very interesting. That yeah, you followed curiosity and. Um... And also passion that's um, that's really wonderful to hear and um you kind of answered already how you chose your field of research <laughs> um so is there maybe um for this project or for projects you you started doing then in your own lab is there maybe like a background story was it really easy to get funding was was it really hard that you know, we had researchers here sharing. Yeah, you know, exactly. everyone told me I was crazy <laughs> in the beginning. Yeah. So, is there maybe something yeah, there? Yeah, uh, yeah, when I was doing my PhD in London in the School of Pharmacy, my PhD was uh, to develop a vaccine at the time for an infectious disease, but uh, it was a veterinary vaccine, so it was for a horse disease. And at the time, it was, uh, you know, I was already thinking and, and understanding from my supervisors at the time. It was Professor Oya Halpar in the University of London and Antonio Almeida here in the University of Lisbon. You have from our national agency the opportunity to have like joint PhD programs. 
So in here in Portugal, it was definitely much more difficult than it was in London, but especially because Oya was already um, really advanced in her career and she was getting a lot of funding from the Ministry of Defense and the WHO. So, But at some point I understood that, uh, yeah, infectious diseases was not the, the easiest way to, to attract funding, but I also liked cancer. Um, and uh, as I was working in immunology, and at that time, it was the when you start hearing about the Ludwig Cancer Institute in New York and also in um, Brussels, uh, trying to understand uh, which uh, were the markers in the tumor that were related to immune response, which could be strong or changed in a way that would awake our immune system towards that um, uh, cancer cell. So I thought, why not to merge what I was doing, but instead of uh, looking into infectious disease to go for cancer, and it was clear that cancer would attract much more funding, even though, yeah, you are right, funding is not easy. We have a, a lot of rejections. Uh, I remember I, I always wanted to work on the vaccination for cancer, and this, there is still so, even today, so so many people that are cynical about it. And at the time, people in my institute, they were always saying, no, 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 go to uh, work on that, but focus on gene delivery, for example. Uh, SRNA delivery, it's much more fancy, trending, it will be much more easy. It will be easier for you to get funding. Then uh, I think the key was that I started from the very beginning to work on projects that were collaborative. I always understood that we needed to have people that would help us with their knowledge in fields that we don't, uh, we are not um, comfortable with it or we, we, it's not our expertise. So I started to apply from the, the, the easiest way out, which was to what we knew more at the time, which were our projects from our national agency already in collaboration with, for example, uh, Veronique Préa from the Université Catholique Louvain in Brussels. And I, I think I was lucky because I was awarded that project two years after I finished my PhD. And uh, I was also awarded PhD uh, fellowships for my students. So it started from there. But then <laughs> we get the real life. And it's true, we have a lot of uh, rejections, but uh, I try to think about these rejections in a way to improve or that we didn't exactly describe what we think that we were describing or the way that we were describing was not clear enough and try to make it better and never give up going there again, um, making the right connections or at least people with whom you feel good working with that are complementary with you. So I think this is the path that I've been taking. And uh, I think uh, even in Portugal, with all the problems that we have in terms of uh, accessibility to funding, um, it has been a, a nice journey. I think so. Well, I'm so glad you uh, keep taking the path of, you know, seeing it kind of in a way to improving and from this positive way that uh, that's wonderful and congratulations for that and you. You know, also for this really amazing research that you um, published and have been doing so um, that's really wonderful and yeah we have a 
pin the your presentation on top of the room so people can access it. Um, they scroll through it. Um, so people here on the app, they have to kind of scroll through it uh, by themselves. So uh, it's really helpful if you refer to uh, the slide number when you switch slides. And uh, um, yeah, the stage is yours. And thank you again, Elena. Okay, thank you. Uh, just to tell the audience that please feel free to interrupt me and make questions whenever you want. Um, I, I talk a lot, so this is a problem <laughs> sometimes. So in the slide two that you have there in the presentation, this is not new for none of us, I guess, which is we are all aware about the revolution that the immunotherapy brought into the cancer treatment. But still, and even though it is, uh, it is clear that it brought uh, some solutions to patients that didn't have any other option, uh, like uh, metastatic melanoma patients. But when we look at the numbers in a less positive way, we see that still a, a huge percentage of them do not respond to the therapy. We are talking about around 70% of melanoma, also in breast cancer. Uh, but still the 30 and 20% in breast cancer, for example, that are responding, it's really important. But this shows that we have very good drugs and these monoclonal antibodies against immune checkpoints are very powerful drugs. But we, we all, always thought that maybe there is still room to improve them uh, or at least to find a way this was how this project started to create these targets in tumors that were not there, uh, where these targets are not present. So we were trying, for example, to use vaccination for that. And then uh, we thought that, uh, okay, but there are still these tumors like melanoma that express nice levels of PD-1, but still PD-L1, but still they do not respond. So is this just due to the other components of the tumor microenvironment or uh, we need to target other um, uh, receptors to complement this response, or we can still take advantage of this anti-PD-1 uh, and try to improve the, the efficacy of these antibodies. So in the slide three is just a, a summary of what I was saying, that this PD-1, they are expressed by T cells, the PDL one and the PDL 2 are the ligands of this receptor. They are present on the tumor cells, also in other cells, for example, dendritic cells, endothelial cells. But the problem is that when this PD-1 binds to the PDL one the T cells, they do not expand into effector, uh, immune effector cells. So they are not active. So what we, if you go to slide four, it, it was already proven that if you use an antibody to block this connection, then these T cells, they become activated and they uh, induce the, the destruction of this tumor. But still, you have several problems here. Um, the response rate, it is what we have just saw. Um, but the, also there are another two problems that are really important. That is the resistance. So this means that the patients at some point they stop uh, responding to this therapy, but also, and this equally important, are the adverse effects. And this was something that caught our attention because 
even if you have a really nice therapy, really effective as, and strong as these antibodies, but you as a patient cannot tolerate this therapy, then we have a problem because we have a very good solution, but the patients cannot use them. So what we thought it was, okay, so let's find a way if at least we can take advantage. And then if you go to slide five, you have like a summary of what we would like to have, which is a, a molecule, a, sm a small molecule. So we are talking about something below 500 Daltons. If you compare with the 2000 of the monoclonal antibodies, for example, something that we it could anyhow, besides being small, to accommodate in the receptor of the PDL1 and uh, inhibit its interaction with the PD1. But at the same time, something that you could then formulate, and this has a, a pharmacist, it was something that we, we know that we can always take a, a drug that may be toxic or may not have very nice pharmacokinetic properties, but then you formulate it as a pill or a capsule and you can take advantage of it and overcome some of the adverse effects or, for example, not getting it to, into contact in the stomach and getting into the intestine and being absorbed. So and when we started to work, and even now, there were no small molecule modulators to change the, the activity of these uh, immune checkpoints or others. Uh, none was approved. Now there are two in clinical trials, which is a very good news because this is also something that you need to fight. It's not only to show your science, but also to convince that this is something that is not uh, science fiction, is, is real, and you can really take advantage of it and bring it to patients. So in slide six, it, you have a picture of Rita. Rita Curcio was a PhD student in my lab that together with a colleague of mine, which is Rita Get, she's um, uh, an expert in sinochemistry and computational. Uh, and in, with our collaboration as well with uh, Professor Ronit Sachifainaro in the Tel Aviv University in Israel, we were working in these cancer projects together. And we thought, why not, if it, why not to try to understand, to figure out if it is possible at all to uh, find, uh, identify a small molecule, um, but in a faster way. Uh, and this is something that uh, we always know. And if you go to slide seven, we know that this path about drug discovery is too long. It takes too long. It takes many years. And at the end, you need to move back and forward in order to, to optimize your molecule, but everything then synthesize it at a large scale, go back because it didn't have drug-like properties. So this would take ages. And Rita, what she thought it was, okay, so let's do it computationally. So we took the knowledge of the three of us uh, to understand first, if we could identify using this comp computer-aided drug design. So this means that you take advantage of the... Um, of the knowledge that are, we already have about the, the crystallographic structure of this protein or others that you want. And by predicting the molecules that would bind to those receptors, we move fast and we can identify potential candidates that will go directly to the ex vivo and in vitro studies. And at least we will discard those that at the end, they are not active at all. So if you go to slide eight, this is a summary of what we did. 
So Rita started and uh, Rita Curcio was a brilliant PhD student. She came from chemistry. Uh, then she started working in immunology in my lab. And then she learned computational. So she did all these tasks. She started looking into the structure of the pd one uh, protein. At the time when she started, it was available only one. Now you have at least three available, which, which is good because then uh, the more details you have in the crystallograph crystallographic structure of these uh, proteins, the best you better you can predict the binding of the molecules to the pockets that you identify as being essential for this interaction between the PDL1 and the PD1. So after knowing this, as I said, we need to take those small molecules that we identified and do a kind of a screening in vitro, just in a plate. That this plate is coated with a PDL1. Then you incubate with your compounds, your candidates. And you add another antibody that uh, it will be a PD-1. And then you will see if this interaction is blocked, it means that your small molecule was able to prevent the binding of the PD-1 with the PDL-1. This was done in a plate. And then we did, we move on to the cells, uh, patient tissues, and at the end, we validated in an in vivo model. And I, I'll show you a summary of this. So if we go directly to slide 10, this is, was the approach we took for the computational design, uh, comp computer-aided drug design. So we took a, a parallel approach where first, we knew already that there were some um, small molecules that have been published in the past um, as being able to interact with the pdl one but these small molecules were reported as lacking drug-like properties. So, and this prevented that you could use them in, in the future, even for in vitro studies. We, we didn't find at the time any studies about the biological effect of these small molecules. But still, if there was knowledge about them and how they interact with the pockets, this was great. So we could use them to, to understand how, which were the spots that we needed to, to block in order to inhibit this interaction between the PD-1 and PD-L1. So this was the ligand-based card. But at the same time, we wanted to also take into account what I said before, which were the crystallographic structures of the PD-L1. And for that, we used the structure-based card, which was looking at the structure, identifying the spots, and using molecular dynamics to understand if these small molecules, even being small, they are able to stay there with, between the pocket. So, but to, to do this, you also need to define some targets, right? We cannot just uh, simply go and, um, so, and select all of them that will bind there. So in, in slide 11, these are the, the factors that we defined. So the first one, we wanted a small molecule. So as I said before, around the top, it would be like 500 uh, Daltons, we have here 300 to 600. Then this gold score, it's a measure that indicates you if this binding occurs to the PDL1 small molecule. And after you select it, here it was around, um, if I'm not mistaken, around 800 molecules. And then Rita took those that were the top hits to, and she observed visually how they would bind to the PD-1. 
So it was a, a kind of, even if it is a computational, it was also, uh, it had also this component of visual inspection that was really important to then select those that were staying there within the pocket. Because if they are not there with high affinity, then they will, they, if they bind, they will be washed. So, and the fourth factor, it was, we wanted a drug that would also have um, properties, I mean, like, uh, like uh, they were uh, with a, a partition coefficient that would be adequate for in the future to have an oral administration of these small molecules. As this would be brilliant, as we, we would avoid the injection of the antibodies. And also we can play, as I said before, with the formulation to improve the, the tolerability of these uh, small molecules and also to direct them. And if needed, one of the options that we have, we had and we were considering, but at the, at the moment, we don't think we will need it. It was to use, for example, then drug delivery to just target these small molecules to the, um, to the targeted tissue, like the tumor site. But we want to avoid that and to have a, the simplest system as possible to be also affordable. So after all of this, and you can see in slide 12, if you click on it, you have a movie. And this movie shows you exactly the purple. You have a, a molecule that is yellow. Then it comes, if I'm not mistaken, uh, orange. Uh, a purple first and an orange after. This purple is the 69 molecule that uh, we then um, used for the in vivo studies. And this was the kind of uh, visu visual inspection that Rida did, and it was important to select them. Then in slide 13, you have just a summary of all the compounds. And here we are talking about roughly 100 uh, compounds that uh, Rita selected for the in vitro and uh, assays, for actually for the screening in vitro assay. And this was important, for example, the molecular weight, the partition coefficient. So you can see that we had molecules that were very small, others that were above the threshold, like the 500. So these ones we didn't pursue with them. But it was nice to see that we actually had different molecules that were predicted to bind to bind in a, with a high affinity to the receptor and with, with some of them more hydrophobic, more hydrophilic. And in this case, you want some lipophilicity because ideally we want these small molecules to cross the biological membranes. This is important and it would be an advantage compared to the monoclonal antibodies. They, they cannot do. And this would give advantage of this small molecule, for example, if you want to target brain tumors, uh, the antibodies, they don't cross the BVB and these small molecules, if they have a, 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 some lipophilicity, they, they can diffuse also because they are small. So from these, we took these 100 compounds and we did this uh, heat validation study, which was the screening I was describing before. So you just have uh, like ELISA plates where you have the PDL1 um, conjugated to the, to the well, and then you add your small molecule, and on top of it, you add the antibody uh, that would bind to the PDL1, so the, uh, an anti-PD1. If you manage to block this interaction, 
then you get a, a lower level, a lower uh, percentage of this interaction. And you can see in this slide 14, in green, in the upper graph, you have those that were the best ones. Uh, here, we, we selected the threshold around 25, but you could select more. But as we had so many positive hits, it was already for us really nice to go for those that had the low, the highest ability to prevent this interaction or to block this interaction. So we selected 12 compounds. We performed, and this you can see in slide 15, the, 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 uh, the, the dose response curves. This is also important because, especially if you look into the translation of these compounds into the clinical after, which you need a compound that is able to block this interaction, but you need also a compound that is able to block this interaction at a lower concentration. So you have already, and this is a challenge, to have compounds where you can have this uh, efficacy at the nanomolar. Um, this you can get after, and if you, um, if you remember from our paper, Howard's is like a, in the hundreds uh, nanomolar, like 0.1 micromolar, which is not bad, but is not brilliant, I understand. But then we pursued with this one because it was highly stable. And this molecule has a really uh, room for improvement in terms of uh, changing of the chemical entities in the, in the molecule. And this was what we thought when we pursued with the 69. Uh, we had others that were also promising, like the 47 and the 42. If you see in these graphs, they have a dose response curve very similar to this BMS 202. This BMS is one of those small molecules that has, uh, has been uh, developed by Bristol Myers Squibb, but at some, at some point they just um, stopped using it, uh, saying that uh, they lack drug-like properties. So. Uh, most probably they were not uh, stable or um, lipophilic enough, uh, or they were too lipophilic, so you couldn't work with them. So in addition to the 69, we had the 47 and 42. They were for, with different scaffolds. Uh, we had to select the, the one of them to, to pursue. And so our first candidate was the 69, as it was the one that had a, a dose response curve um, also similar to the um, BMS 202, but it was highly stable, the molecule, and with room for improvement, improvement uh, chemically, I mean. So in slide 16, and th then was the other question, which was we showed in the plates that it binds, but it's not enough. We need to show that it really binds. So at this point, we thought about two assays to do this. So the first one is what you have in slide 16, which is you have your protein, the PDL1, you mix your small molecule with the PDL1, and you uh, increase the temperature. So this melting temperature, and if you measure the, the full change uh, on this temperature shift when you have the small molecule complexed with a protein, it means that your complex is stable, which means that it binds with a higher affinity. So this is what this assay showed us. Again, the, the 42, the, the 47, and the 69 as well. And then in the next one, slide 17, it's a more accurate way to show this 
You could also do it by crystallography, for example, but we, we used NMR, where again, we mix the protein with a small molecule. In this case, we use the SEM69, you see in C and in D. Um, and also we use the BMS202 as a positive control to show if the, sh the change that you would have on the NMR spectra would be similar. And you can see that B and D, which is the, the spectra that you have when you have the combination of the BMS202 with the protein and TPDL1 is similar to the one that we got with a small molecule. So this was a, the proof that the small molecule binds to the PDL1. We don't know if it is the only mechanism by which we got the activity, but for sure, at least, is mediated by the PDL1 um, interaction. So next, we wanted to understand, okay, you want to inhibit this interaction, but we don't want a small molecule that will be cytotoxic. We don't want it to use as a drug that will kill the tumor cells and everything else that it finds on the way. So we did uh, these very simple studies where you just um, study the, the impact of these small molecules in the viability of cells. We used uh, three cell lines, two, one breast cancer, one melanoma cancer of, of uh, human cell lines, because all our study in terms of the computational, it was done um, using the PDL1 human uh, structure, which is slightly different from the mouse. The mouse would be very interesting for the preclinical studies, but we really wanted to go to move forward for the human uh, setting. So you could see that some of these molecules, uh, they did in fact uh, in, had a negative effect on the viability of the cells, but again, the 69, the 47, the 42, and some others, they didn't. So these were good news. So they were binding and they were not killing these cells, either if they were cancer cells, but also we had as a control endothelial cells as well, which you have in this slide 18 in the bottom. So we move forward and we wanted now to understand if these cell lines would confirm the data that we got in the plates, which would, see, would be the inhibition of this PDL1. So for that, we just cultured the cell line, the breast cancer. We added our compounds and we measured by flocytometry the accessibility of this PDL1. And again, we, it confirmed that they were in fact inhibiting. But here we started already to see a difference compared to the BMS 202. But you can see in red in this slide 19, the, the, monoclonal anti, the effect of the monoclonal antibody. And you can see that is really has much higher affinity than the small molecules, but it's okay. We were expecting this. Uh, this was uh, nothing uh, different from what we were expecting. So if you go to slide 20, here we can see the, then the idea was to understand, okay, we saw in vitro in a plate that inhibits, then we saw in the cells in vitro, in a cell line of breast cancer that it also inhibits. But uh, we now wanted to see what, how it would be the interaction between these tumor cells when you inhibit the PDL1 with your small molecule, what would be the impact on the T cells. So in this first approach, 
we we followed the stepwise approach that we increased uh, complexity. So we because we wanted to discard those candidates that would be like false positives. So we what we did we used the same cell lines. We used human PBMCs where you have mostly T cells. We co-cultured them after the tumor cells being activated with the interferon gamma. The interferon gamma is a major activator of this PDL1, which mimics what you have in the tumor uh, niche when in the presence of cancer. And when we added the small molecules, you can see on the right side, the T cells were able to activate interferon gamma. They, uh, sorry, to secrete interferon gamma, to secrete the NF alpha. But we also saw, and we confirmed that inhibit the PDL1 on these tumor cells. And in here, some of the small molecules changed the PD-1 expression on the T cells, but our 69 didn't change in this, uh, in this uh, assay, but it was okay. This was not our uh, major focus. We wanted to see the effect on the pd one and this is what we got. And the 69 was one of the, those that were changing more the secretion of these uh, cytokines. So now that we confirmed that they have the same effect in the human uh, cells. We followed these collaborations that we have in the hospitals just across the street in our, um, in our faculty. We have uh, one of the major uh, hospitals in Portugal and we have collaborations with some oncologists that they are also uh, researchers. And we got some cells from them. Here, the challenge is to have matched tumor cells and blood from the same patient. This is important because we need to have the HLA matching, right? From the T cells that we isolate from the PDMCs and the tumor cells. We got from melanoma, uh, bone metastasis of breast cancer and, um, and metastasis of lung cancer as well. And we did a co-culture of these uh, two populations. We treat them with um, a with our small molecules and also using the atezolizumab as a, a control because this is one of the anti-PDL1 antibodies used in the clinic. This you can see in slide 21. And this was already a really interesting result for us as well because it will, if, you can, if you pay attention to the different slides, in red you have the effect when the cells were treated with the monoclonal antibody and in yellow, you have when the cells were treated with our small molecule. Uh, the CD28 was the positive control. And you can see that in all of them, the small molecule, the impact that it had on the T cells, it was similar or even better than the monoclonal antibody. And interestingly, what you can see in, the, in B, in the graph PD1, it was that the small molecule was decreasing the PD-1 expression. This was interesting. We didn't see in the cell line. We only saw in the patient tumor samples. And this means that somehow the small molecule is inhibiting the pd one but it's also having a, an effect on the PD-1, which is important to... to so in a, in a way, you are blocking the two targets. Also important, it was the expression of the CD-107. So the T cells were activated. And in some cases, as good or even better than in the uh, cells treated with a monoclonal antibody. So this was a very good indication for us. For us, it was already enough 
but you see that they are activated. But one of the major challenges that these monoclonal antibodies have, as I said before, is their capacity to infiltrate in the solid tumor mass, as I explained, for example, for the membranes. So what we tried to do, it was to actually to see the effect of this small molecule in the ability of these T cells to infiltrate the tumor mass. So this is what you have in slide 22, where we prepared spheroids, again, using tumor cells uh, derived from, uh, uh, or uh, cancer cells derived from uh, tissues from patients and matched PBMCs. We prepared the spheroid uh, with the cancer cells. You treat the spheroid with, a, with a, a small molecule or the monoclonal antibody, and then you add the PBMCs. And you will see if the small molecule or the antibody has any effect on the ability of these T cells to infiltrate in this spheroid, which is a 3D uh, co-culture, right? And what you can see in slide 22, it was really interesting for us, which was you have the, the first one is the PBS. And in, uh, in uh, green, you have the staining of the T cells. And here we, we stained only the CD8 T cells, which was the, our major uh, focus. So you can see that in the PBS, some T cells are there. Uh, when you treated the spheroids with anti-PDL1, uh, there were still some there, but this amount was uh, really increased when you used the small molecule. So this was again confirming what we thought, which was that the small molecule has a higher ability to improve the infiltration of these T cells, maybe because the, the small molecule itself, it is able to diffuse in the tumor mass. But this was a maybe, and uh, we didn't have any proof, even if we, in confocal microscopy, using confocal microscopy, we did several uh, sections and we understood that the T cells were in the, in the middle of the, in, uh, within the tumor mass. So we had to go to a, an in vivo setting. Here we, we had a challenge because we couldn't use a, a simple marine model because we are targeting human PDL1 and we are also changing the interaction of the P, human PD1. So we, we used a, an animal model, which is a colorectal cancer um, mouse model, MC38. We used the cell line and this cell line was changed to express the human PDL1 and the mice that we use, they were uh, genetically modified to have T cells that express the human PD1. So this was a really nice model. And actually, this was the model used when the um, immune checkpoint monoclonal antibodies and PD1 were developed. So this was a, a good validation approach for us. So we, we, we did this study where you had the PBS a group that was treated with atezolizumab, the, the human monoclonal antibody, and our small molecule. That is true that we had to give more doses, but we we higher number of doses because the half-life of this small molecule is, is shorter than the antibody, for sure, because the antibody uh, may have a, a half-life of month. So, but what, even though it was really nice to see that the efficacy in terms of controlling the tumor growth was similar, this, I, f I don't remember if I said the slide, so it's the 23, the last one with data. And so it was really the same. And on top of it, the variability, it was a kind of better with uh, the small molecule, which means that the 
the tumors uh, presented by some animals were very similar within the same group, and some of them they 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 didn't have tumor after 30 days. And when we took the tumors of those that still had tumor, even if they were tiny, we could understand that the CD8 T cells, this is what you have in G, were uh, at higher extent, at, at higher frequency than in the tumors of those animals treated with monoclonal antibodies. And again, as we saw in the co-cultures with the tumor uh, tissues, we had a decrease on the PDL1, but we also had a decrease on the PD1, which we didn't see with the monoclonal antibody. So this was a very good indication of a, a small molecule that now it has a room for improvement in terms of the uh, delivery. This uh, small molecule was administered as the monoclonal antibody, IP, and now we are exploiting it for oral delivery with the formulation as a, um, a pill which can, and by, you know, coating the pill, we can change the, the pharmacokinetics uh, of the small molecule and increase the shelf, the half-life of this small molecule. So this is where we are heading now. And um, we hope we can have some data and to prove what we expect, which is that we'll have a oral therapy that can be more easily available to everyone and with, with much lower side effects. And this is what I had to, to show you today. And the other slide is just, uh, the 24 is just a conclusion. And the 25 is just uh, the people involved in this study. As I said from the beginning, as I, I always did since I start my group, I, I try to, to join efforts with people that uh, will help us to move faster and better in a better rational way. And in this study, especially you have the role in this, you can see it's site 25, Rita Gedz, which is our computational um, scientist, and Ronitsachi Fainaro, which was the in the lab where they developed these 3D uh, spheroids that then we, we validated in our lab too. And thank you all for being here and for your attention. And uh, please go ahead and ask some questions in case you have. Well, thank you so much for sharing this really amazing research with us and for presenting it and explaining um, everything uh, in a way that, you know, even I could understand. So <laughs> thank you for that. And um, yeah, if people have questions, please go ahead and, and ask and um, flash your microphones. Um, yeah, Dr. Shah, please go ahead. Yeah, thank you so much, Doctor, for sharing your amazing research with us. So we are aware of the IME limitation. And as you just mentioned, one of the reasons can be the heterogeneity of the tumor. And uh, my question from you, because we need a preclinical as well as the clinical result. And uh, what exact pathway you were focused on? Because we know about the changes, specifically about the post-trans changes on the T-cells. And I was just wondering, is there any specific pathway that you just challenged during the, your experiment or not? Uh, thank you for your question. No, during we just uh, wanted to like to regulate, to inhibit the pdl one pd one interaction. So we didn't check further 
if there if this had any impact on the for example the transcriptional profile of the t cells but we are trying to understand because they they are more active and uh, the exhaustion profile is is uh, much lower so definitely we need to understand what is the impact because this can also help us to find a way to to identify uh, potential candidates that we can combine as well in the same formulation. Also about the, I mean, breast cancer, you mentioned that was a ER positive. I mean, I, I didn't notice yes. about the type. Okay. And do you think that you can use it for the gastrointestinal, for example, uh, EBV, GC? Yeah. yeah, we are trying to, actually, we were combining this molecule with a vaccine that we developed for CRC and pancreatic cancer. And we tested, then we tested, as we had the models, the, the small molecule. But in this case, we only tested in 3D spheroids. But the, the result was quite interesting. And what we saw is that we can, the same, activate the T cells, but they are in a much lower number in the pancreatic cancer, for example. So in that case, when we use the vaccine, the vaccine worked as a, um, a Trojan horse, so increased the amount of T cells that we managed to infiltrate in the tumor mass, and then the small molecule did the, the, the job after we increased the amount of these T cells. Thank you. Thank you. May I ask a question? Yes, go ahead. Um, okay, the screen you started with is like 600 to 800? small molecules yeah. right so yeah. and after you after you fixed on this 69 uh, have you i mean tried to look for other like um, closely resembled 69 or even maybe modification 69 just to um, play around yeah. with it a little, little bit yes thank you yeah you are absolutely right because this is what we are doing now now what we are doing is like the the novo design so looking at the scaffold and trying to, to see if any changes are predicted, this is computationally, uh, predicted to increase the, the efficacy. At the moment, the 69 is still our uh, major candidate, but uh, we are looking into that because the main idea, it, it will be to keep the, a kind of lipophilicity that it has, but is doable to formulate but still to to maybe i think we can even increase the the efficacy or the the impact that it has in the activity of the t cells by changing some of the functional groups in the molecule you are absolutely right yeah thank you i tried to play the movie but i couldn't maybe somebody else did I, if you go let me see if you go to the slide and then if you put in presentation mode if you press on it, um, you should have a like play arrow. Okay, I will try. On the bottom. Okay. And then you. Thank you. Hopefully it will. Thank you for the presentation. It was wonderful. Really enjoyed Thank it. You. Yeah, I think it was really great. I, I love this work. Um, just a sort of a general question. This might be unpredictable, but um, what would you foresee the best possible timeline to make this available to people. Anyway, thanks, I'm done. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, this is a, we, we, now we are trying to, you know, the, the regular path, we, 
we we thought about the definitely what we need to do and uh, after we complete and we are sure that this the novo design is not revealing uh, another anal analog that will be better at the moment none of them are predicted to be better we want to synthesize it at a industrial scale because the the formulation for as a pill we already developed and it's quite um, straightforward so after this scale up we need to complete all the pharmacokinetics and then to fill in for the ind so as it is a small molecule and not a complex system uh, our target would be to have at least these in one year time to be able to fill in for clinical trials uh, assuming that we'll have we would have all the funding that we need for the scale up yeah that's exciting thank you for the answer and the work thank you hi einar did you have a question that you wanted to ask yeah hi katarina uh thank you very much um so yeah this is very interesting to me uh because it seems that you're trying to prove that uh what you put into your body actually reflects on this self um what we eat what we uh, put in the body and when it comes to liquid and so forth um uh, you know it's basically information traveling up the spine uh, it's being uh thereon reflected by the mind and thereon actually um goes through our the body as a the whole um when it comes to t-cells uh and what actually travels up through the spine when it comes to information here um um the question and I, this is for my own curiosity because i i, I haven't studied this field uh, i do not have the same vocabulary uh, as uh, uh, many of the people in this room uh, pardon that uh, but when it comes to um, the situation when uh, for apoptosis, apoptosis, for example, mm -hmm. uh, there's a driven force of what is being actually, uh, if I can use the word, recycled in our body and what is not. Um, so uh, this is basically as far as i read your research uh, goes towards proteins and glucose not that much lactose uh, because there's a, a huge uh, gap here between lactose as a sugar uh, working um, uh, towards other sugar related molecules um but the proteins are important but what is the driven part when it comes to mitochondria for example you know it, it is not necessarily the, the proteins when it comes to how the, the the system works at itself it's a bit hard to explain yeah thank you okay. yeah i think uh, yeah you're right it's uh there is a lot that we don't know and we are you are right when we say it and we are looking into the cell the cell as a as a cell and to see the function of these t cells and how they impact the size of the tumor so we are looking into it at a very high level 
But uh, when you touch the sugars, and this is uh, really interesting because, for example, in all our work that we are developing with a vaccine in parallel with this uh, small molecule, that our idea was actually to have this small molecule inside the vaccine, with, where you will not have a like a, a true a real vaccine, but a kind of a medicine already. It was that the what was surprising for us. It was that if we had mannose present in the system, we changed completely the way that the antigens would be presented, and then the immune response would be activated. So uh, I know that this doesn't answer your question, but uh, in fact, we don't know the answer about the effect on the mitochondria or other, um, or even in the metabolism of the cells. But we do see a difference each time that we play with uh, some of these metabolites, especially with sugars, that we can drive the immune response in a, in a more efficient way. But we are really far away to understand the full mechanism and also of these small molecules. If you see, we say that they, in, they block or they um, affect the interaction between PDL1 and PD1. But if you see, they bind there, but we also see a decrease on the PD1. And we, it was supposed to have this effect on the PDL1. But when we do the validation or the control on, on PD, PD1, we also see the binding. And they are very different. So it's, it's a kind of interaction uh, effect, but it may have uh, as well uh, an effect on the function of the cells that we don't know the origin and how it, 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 it works. But uh, it works. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for the question and answering uh, these interesting questions. And um, I have, a, you know, since I'm coming from the field of neuroscience, I have been also really interested in the immune-related connection with some, um, especially neurodegenerative diseases and so on. And um, you, since you're working with small molecules, would you know or did you test if they would pass the blood-brain barrier? And if yes, would you would you have some data or um, find it interesting to maybe one day check if those compounds could also address different um, neurodegenerative or mental health disorders? And why I ask is because there's more and more data that shows that uh, mechanisms that change synaptic plasticity and you know that neurons use overlap with um, what is being uh, observed in cancer cells mm -hmm. and there is you know more labs that are working on using um, you know uh, drugs from cancer you know epigenetic mechanism targeting drugs to like um, check if in mouse models, if that would also treat some mental health related disorder. So, anyways, long story short, do, do you think it would pass the blood brain barrier? And if there would be, you know, interest in, in researching if you could also treat those type of disorders? 
Yes, thank you, Katerina. We, the, the idea when we were doing the screening, it was to have thermomolecule that would be uh, lipophilic enough to cross the, the biological membranes. We didn't do yet a pharmacokinetic study to, uh, to quantify exactly the amount of the small molecule that we could find in the brain, for example. But uh, this is this is something that we are currently working because we, we are also working in uh, brain metastasis of melanoma and breast cancer. And we are now uh, trying to understand if the small molecule alone or if we need a boost on the immune response to, again, to increase the, the amount of effector T cells that we manage to infiltrate within the brain um, in order to take advantage of the small molecule. So I, I from the, the criteria that we set up in the experiment, I would say that it's expectable that they would cross the biological membranes and mo most probably the BBB, the, which is our major target, but I, I don't have data yet to answer to you to that question. But definitely it is important. We are also working with a group with a, about a multiple sclerosis trying to characterize the, the effect on the, on the on microglia and uh, on the myelin. So definitely there is room for, uh, I agree with you, cancer and the neurodegenerative disease, they will merge more and more. Go ahead, Joyce. I was wondering, um, do you think it has any antimicrobial potential? Um, and also, another question is, would it work in someone who is immunosuppressed? Yeah, good question. About the antimicrobial potential, I, I don't know. We didn't test. In the immune-suppressed ones, we had some of these tissue samples that were from uh, tumors that high, are highly immune-suppressive. So we see that the, in those cases, we need to have uh, boost of the immune response in order to have, uh, at, let's say, the, a number of T cells that will be able to have an outcome in terms of the cytotoxic immunity. So these were, but these were very challenging uh, uh, tissue samples that we got, for example, from metastasis in the bone and also from pancreatic cancer, that they were really a desert in terms of T cells. Even though we saw infiltration of T cells, but the response was much better when we, we joined, for example, with the activation with CPD, for example, an adjuvant to improve the chemoattraction of, on the T cells. Okay, thank you for addressing those. So it's a good time because you just mentioned about the pancreatic cancer. So how was that? Did you use the, for example, gem beside that in combination or how you did that? That was, for example, some of the research around the zonobiotic transplant and they are testing those things. Yeah, this was uh, some, uh, we have a collaboration with the hospital also uh, nearby our faculty. And uh, these were tissues that were just uh, resected from patients. The patients were not treated yet, so we could characterize the tissues. And uh, the idea was to address, for example, the combination of this small molecule with a radiotherapy. So the tissues were irradiated, and then we added the small molecule. And as we were expecting, the, the infiltration of the T cells and the immune response activation was much higher. But these are really 
uh, assays that we are just doing and we don't have yet a validation, for example, in an in vivo model, but we do see, see synergism. About the drugs, we, we didn't do yet. Yeah, I was just wondering, maybe you use the gem site of, you know, yeah. such a things on the site. No. Not yet. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, Dennis, you joined the stage. How are you? Uh, do you have a question? Hello, everyone. Um, yeah, I had a question. It was perhaps a little off topic, but we were discussing the blood-brain barrier. I was curious, understanding that the permeability can change, what is the standard size of molecule that can permeate that particular membrane? Well, there are several factors that uh, I think that will have to be taken into account. For example, not only the size, the monoclonal antibodies, mostly they don't, if you have the BBB not damaged, right? They don't permeate. For example, you can also use uh, these small molecules of this size, like uh, up to 500 daltons, they are expect to, but it, then it depends on the physical chemical properties of them. Um, like the the coefficient the, the coefficient partition that they would have. Um, one of the strategies that people use is to use high concentrations of surfactants. So then you can uh, kind of mix your molecules with a BBB, but then you have also some concerns about the integrity of the BBB. But then it depends on the tumors. For example, glioblastoma, you have the vasculature that is um, not so uh, intact. So it will be easier to get these small molecules into the brain rather than others um, that are either non-vascularized or you have the, the BBB is not compromised at all. Fascinating. I would not have thought that there would be surfactants used mm -hmm. in this. That's really interesting. Thank you so much. <laughs> Yeah, uh, thank you so much, everyone, for asking questions. And especially, of course, thank you for uh, to you, Elena, um, for answering all of our questions and sharing your research. And um, unless somebody has like an urgent question, oh, our star, you have your hand raised. Um, do you have a last question? I'm trying to bring you up. Oh, it worked. Hey, do you have a last question you want to, or a comment you want to share? Yeah, I do. Thank you. Um, it's concerning breast cancer. I think you said that um, you used uh, ER positive when you when you ran your tests, and so obviously there are different subtypes. Um, I'm familiar with a triple positive, so that would have the HER2 positive, the PR positive, and the ER positive. And so I'm wondering if the therapy you're talking about, is this happening upstream of those receptors so that it would, it would work universally for all the subtypes of breast cancer? Or do you have to, are you looking to test further those particular subtypes? You know, Because for instance, with the triple positive, there's a thing called crosstalk between say ER and, and HER2 where if you're treating one of the receptors, the tumor can in fact shift to the other receptor 
um, to, to evade the therapy. So I'm just wondering, maybe you've said it early on and I missed it, but is, is the therapy you're dealing with upstream of these receptors so that it would work across all subtypes or do you have to test uh, the further, you know, do you have to test these other subtypes? Yeah, thank you. No, no, I think we need to test because actually we had some that, uh, for example, also the, we were looking first into triple negative breast cancer. This was uh, our first um, option at the time because then you you know you have a higher expression of the pdl one but also it was reported in some that were R2. So that's why we then tested in both and they work, but definitely it changes the, the activation of the T cells in the different subtypes. So we really need to check the PDL1 expression and then to adapt according to the to that expression in these tumors. I, I don't think it will work un universally in these all subtypes that are R2 positive. Okay, thank you. But that is a further interest of yours, uh, attempting to yes, to well, look into these different subtypes? Yeah, we yeah. are looking into the different subtypes, triple negative, uh, HER2 positive, the different subtypes to, to try to find a way if we can actually look into the different uh, chemical compositions of these uh, small molecules that may be more related to one than the other because we are seeing some trend. Hmm. Nice. Okay. Thank you for the presentation. It's wonderful. Thank you. Okay, great. Uh, thank you so much for that question and for entering. Um, so, yeah, thank you so much, Alina, uh, for sharing your amazing research with us. And we wish you all the funding <laughs> and all the <laughs> smart people that you need to work with you on this because I think it will save a lot of people's lives and um, and maybe even you know in other disorders uh, like neurodegenerative disorders and so on so again uh, thank you so much for being persistent and always looking from the bright side to improve when you don't get funding and I hope you'll get a lot of funding and uh, then we're looking forward to hear more. Maybe you come back and then share more projects sure. and research. Thank you Thank for you. the invitation and thank you all for the questions and uh, and for this discussion. Thank you. And sure, I'll be really happy to go back. Wonderful. Um, so yeah, thanks everyone for coming. And if you like discussions like this, follow the club. Uh, we have... Um, more researchers coming up to uh, share their work with us. Uh, tomorrow we'll have Dr. Lazarov and she will talk about how she managed to restore memories in mice with Alzheimer's disease. And then um, on Wednesday we have a researcher, um, Dr. Asalis, who will talk about model predictive organism design with biophysics and machine learning and um, we will have Dr. Varun Venkataramani talking about glioblastoma brain invasion and how um, how that works that's basically the this cancer type 
invades the brain. And uh, then on Friday, we'll have Dr. Goodyear about um, talking about um, how he visualizes heartbeats in vivo with the antibody dye. And uh, yeah, it's really interesting. Like, <laughs> it's very cool videos about the activity in the heart. So thank you, everyone. Thank you, Alina, again for being here. And I uh, hope we'll talk to everyone uh, soon again. Thank you. Thank you all. Bye. Thanks again, Helena and Katarina and everyone. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, and uh, thank you, everyone. And I'll close the room in three, two, one. Bye, everyone.